Europe is at the epicenter of the crisis, according to the World Health Organization. A surge in cases across the continent is pushing politicians to bring in new restrictions. Like policing the pandemic in Paris, incentivizing injections in Italy and guarding the trains in Germany. Austria has returned to a full national lockdown because of its rising number of coronavirus infections. At the same time, protests against new restrictions have been growing in several European countries, especially in the Netherlands and in Belgium. Coronavirus cases are once again on the rise in Europe and across the world. The World Health Organization has said that countries shouldn't be giving out booster jabs for the rest of the year, but in the UK, we're offering third shots to people as young as 40. Meanwhile, only 3% of people in low-income countries have had a single dose. The World Health Organization is trying to convince wealthier countries to go easy on booster shots and make sure that every country in the world has at least vaccinated 10% of the population and Africa, most African countries will miss that target. Most countries here in the global south will miss that target. There are six times as many boosters being administered as there are first-time vaccinations in poorer countries. Think about that, six boosters to every one first-time shot. It's quite an incredible number. And will he consider the message that a population-wide booster program might risk sending to other countries that sense that everyone has to do this. We know there are not limitless supplies of the vaccine, and that could be an absolute disaster for countries in Africa, for example, where only 2% are fully vaccinated. COVID vaccines may have prevented hundreds of thousands of deaths in the UK, but who is missing out on the global vaccine rollout? Why can't poorer countries get hold of the COVID vaccine? And how can we change the rules of our international economy so that everyone is protected during the pandemic? We've seen increasing reports over recent weeks that there are factories lying idle around, right the way around the world, including in Europe, actually, and they can't produce the vaccines because they don't own, they don't have access to um, the patents that would allow them to produce it. So why are ministers so determined to block progress towards achieving, as South Africa and India want, a temporary waiver of intellectual property rules to help developing countries develop their own vaccine manufacturing capacity. I think what we should be focused on and what the UK should be focused on is overcoming some of the bottlenecks that have been created by the kind of monopoly protection that these vaccines have in the hands of a small number of pharmaceutical companies. So that if we were able to share the know-how and share the formula, we would allow more organizations and companies around the world to be producing the vaccines so we can get more equitable access more quickly. Welcome to the final episode of this series of the Weekly Economics podcast. This week, we're asking, how do we close the COVID vaccination gap? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Achal Prabala, writer, researcher and coordinator of the Access IBSA project. Hi, Achal. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us. And I'm also really pleased to be joined by a very special guest, Sersha Fitzpatrick, advocacy manager at Stop AIDS. Hi, Sersha. Hi. Thanks for jumping on last minute. You've really saved the day. Um, so she's a hero. So let's get started. So in continental Europe, COVID infections are on the rise again. So where are the pandemic hotspots right now that we should be concerned about? Acha, let's start with you. Well, in terms of the hotspots themselves, I think that I know what you know, which is what we read in the press, right? Which is the German health minister, Jens Spahn, saying with what's apparently characteristic bluntness, that by the end of December, Germans are either going to be vaccinated, cured, or dead. 
And I think it's a really sick sign of the times that even a statement as bleak as that made in Germany is a sign of privilege. Because, of course, those same three choices are not available to about half the world's population, which hasn't received a single vaccine doses yet. Which is to say that the choices for a lot of people in this world, billions of people, in fact, are either to be cured or dead. And it's unclear where the next hotspot's going to come from. But what I know, having lived through India in the middle of this year, where I live in Bangalore, and having literally watched the Delta variant emerge under my eyes, I think it's incredible that we haven't learned this lesson, even with the new flare-ups in Europe. The variant of the virus that's ravaging Europe currently, which is leading to lockdowns and protests and all kinds of things in Austria and the Netherlands and in Germany, is the Delta variant, which came from India at a time when we had vaccinated only 3% of our population. So imagine the number of countries that are out there waiting with as many unvaccinated people for something else horrible to happen with it, right? And I think this is the thing that we should all be trying to avoid. Absolutely. So, Sersha, you you work as, as kind of part of a coalition of folks um, pushing for global vaccine rollouts. The, the World Health Organization set a goal for 40% of people living in low-income countries to be vaccinated by the end of the year. Do you think it's likely that we're going to meet that goal? Uh, no, it, it doesn't look likely, unfortunately. And also, it's confusing in terms of the question that you asked, Achar, just on the hotspots as well, because the data around cases is obviously extremely skewed because access to diagnostics, the inequality there in terms of access is just as stark as it is to vaccines. You know, here in the UK, there are 4,500 tests per 1,000 people. But in a country like Mozambique, you have 29 tests per 1,000 population. So this has led to six out of seven cases in the African continent going undetected. So it it means that it's very unclear how the virus is spread across the world. Yeah, so it's important, not just in terms of solving the gap with vaccine access, but also in terms of access to diagnostic tests and to treatments as well. The WHO is bringing out more and more treatments, but the same barriers that are preventing global access to vaccines exist for treatments as well. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. I mean, often when you hear this argument in the media, one of the narratives that comes back is, well, outbreaks in the global South at the moment are much less severe than in Europe and North America. So doesn't it make sense that wealthier countries should be vaccinated first? I mean, Achal, what would you, how would you respond to that? One of the many, many estimates of how COVID deaths in India were undercounted uh, suggests that they were undercounted to an extent of about seven times. And the official count in a month like May was close to 5,000 deaths a day. So you can just imagine what the unofficial count would have looked like. This is absolutely true. And this is true for so many kinds of global diseases where the focus on countries which we assume to have the worst problem is typically countries who can also afford to test the problem and report it in a way that several countries can't, including countries like India, which are not really among the very poorest in the world. We are technically, I think, what's called a a lower middle-income country by World Bank income classification. But it still means that we have vast numbers of unreported cases and deaths in this country that just get ignored. 
So the more reliable metric, I think, that we can measure because we're giving those out and we're monitoring them and we know that everybody needs them is how many vaccines we can put into the arms of people. And that number is astonishing low. It's not that even the targets are going to be missed. They're going to be missed by a chasm. I mean, we have uh, less than 10% of the lowest income countries vaccinated. So a target of 40% is not just undoable, it's impossible. And the vaccines simply don't exist for that to happen. And that's something I'm very worried about. Mm, So it's more of an issue of kind of miscounting than it is of the outbreaks being less severe. Sersha, I've I've heard this situation described as vaccine apartheid. What does that phrase mean, first of all? And do you think that that's an appropriate one to be using? Yes. So, I mean, that term very much came from the African activists who were part of the the People's Vaccine Alliance movement. So that's a global movement of civil society organizations and academics um, and lawyers and and various people who are fighting for global equitable access to to all COVID-19 tools. And yeah, I mean, like the inequality is, it is grotesque. The fact that, you know, we've vaccinated over 67% of people in the UK Last year, uh, last week, sorry, there was a uh, story in the media about the government getting rid of 600,000 AstraZeneca vaccines, just putting them in the bin because they'd gone over their sell-by date. You know, that just shows that we, I mean, we're chucking out vaccines that could have been in the arms of people across the world who are still waiting for them now. So, yeah, I think apartheid is completely the, the right word to use. And yeah, and it looks likely that it will be the same for treatments as well. The treatments that are being recommended, you know, they've been used for previous conditions and they're horrendously expensive. They're like $2,000 per course. And while some drug companies are saying that they won't enforce their intellectual property rights in low-income countries, meaning that in theory, manufacturers in those countries would be able to produce them, they are enforcing them in countries that actually have existing capacity to produce now. So that means that countries like China and Brazil, who could be producing treatments and to a large scale and getting those out to people who are suffering from COVID because they haven't been vaccinated, that's another piece of the puzzle, which is, you know, just prolonging the pandemic. Yeah, I want to go on to talk about that now, because some of our listeners might remember at the start of this year, we had an episode exploring vaccine nationalism and why poorer countries were struggling to get hold of COVID vaccines. So just to refresh listeners' memories on this before we dive in, Achal, if you could give us like a quick overview of who owns the rights to COVID vaccines and why is that creating a global vaccination gap? And then we'll circle back on the um, IP issue. When the pandemic was declared last year, there was immediately a rush of investment and activity, a whole sort of flurry of news coming out about vaccines under development. And there were already concerns at that time that the vaccines that were being developed would not be available everywhere that they were needed. One of the reasons is price, simply because they might have been too expensive for people in poor countries to afford. But a a much more pressing reason, which turned out to be indeed the more pressing reason, is availability. The world had never made a pharmaceutical product, much less a more complex product like a vaccine, in the kind of numbers that the entire world required. There are close to 8 billion people on this planet, and presumably every single one of those people or a large majority of them would need these vaccines that came out. And we've never made anything in that quantity, forget double the quantity or triple, right, for a two-dose vaccine and a booster. 
So the concern immediately was to make sure that uh, we could get these vaccines out to as many people as possible by dismantling this fearsome web of monopolies that would protect these vaccines invariably, as they have done for medicines and other life-saving treatments all through the last 25 years, through the 25 years of the existence of the World Trade Organization, we should say. So when vaccines started coming to market at the beginning of this year, a couple of things happened. There were vaccines from China, uh, two vaccines especially, Sinovac and Sinopharm, that were sent out to a lot of middle-income countries, not necessarily the poorest countries, some of them, but primarily to middle-income countries. And in fact, over this year, they've done an incredible job. So these are very old vaccine technologies. They use a killed virus. And what they've done is enabled something like a couple of billion people to be vaccinated across the world, which is more than what a company like Pfizer has done AstraZeneca, which was among the few Western vaccines, which actually allowed itself to be made around the world. And that was, unfortunately, no thanks to either AstraZeneca or the British government, which is at this very moment busy claiming credit for it. But due to the farsightedness of the researchers at the Jenner Institute at Oxford University who produced the vaccine. The other Western vaccines, unfortunately, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna and Pfizer remained absolutely closed off to the rest of the world. The vaccines were supplied almost exclusively to people in rich countries, and there were simply no more vaccines to be sent anywhere else for love or money. And there still aren't, even today. These companies were all meant to be supplying lots of doses to something called the COVAX facility, which is a philanthropic consortium, primarily led by an organization called Gavi, the Vaccines Alliance, they had grand estimates at the start of the pandemic. They said that they would send out 2 billion doses of vaccines by the end of this year. We are now at the end of this year. They've sent out exactly 500 million doses of vaccines. And that's because the Western vaccine manufacturers, who they so touchingly relied upon to vaccinate poor countries at the same rate as rich countries, decided, to no one's surprise, that they didn't want to do that. And they wanted to send vaccines where they could make the most money off them which is usually the countries that they were made in. So now we're here, we're at the end of 2021. Every single promise made by either a rich country like the United Kingdom or the United States or the European Union or a pharmaceutical company located in these rich countries like Pfizer or Moderna or J&J have failed. Every one of those promises has been broken. You have poor countries who have almost no vaccines whatsoever. It is incredibly tragic. You have countries who are not that poor, like India, who even make vaccines where the vaccination rates are still in the region of about 30% of the population, which is so much lower than vaccination rates in rich countries. And it has to be some kind of a breaking point where we cannot move forward into the third year of this pandemic using the same broken tools to create the same broken response that we've lived with so far. Mm, I mean, it's quite astounding. I think even though you think you know how bad it is to hear it described like that, just how broken the system is, is, is still really shocking. I mean, so when we have these conversations, often people say that we need, you know, this kind of system of intellectual property rights in order to encourage medical innovation. I don't know what your response to that would be. I mean, didn't public government money actually 
fund some of the development of some of the bigger vaccines. So how have they ended up in the hands of Big Pharma? Yeah, it's a really good point. Like the industry and the UK government, you know, their reason for not wanting to support some of these progressive solutions, which maybe we'll come on to a little later, is because of that. Yeah, they see any kind of rocking the boat of intellectual property means that we won't get any future innovations. You know, we won't get future COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, etc. But yeah, the reality is like AstraZeneca vaccine that was almost 100% funded by the public. Um, with a huge proportion coming from the UK government, Moderna vaccine, publicly funded, you know, the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, public money, like, it's throughout all of them, the treatments as well, and the diagnostics, and we're actually about to do a a big report into looking at all the UK funding into COVID-19 tools. So yeah, there is no economic justification from the pharmaceutical industry and in normal terms in that, you know, they say, oh, we need intellectual property um, in order to hold a monopoly in the market so we can recoup our investment. When that investment has come from the public purse, it's come from taxpayers. There should be people's vaccines, there should be people's diagnostics, there should, you know, it should it should belong to the public. It should be openly available to everybody who needs it. And how does the development of the COVID vaccine compare to the development of other medical treatments like HIV drugs or the flu vaccine, for example? So in terms of HIV drugs, like antivirals, that's a small molecule for a vaccine, like it's biological matter. And obviously, like there's different platforms, there's, you know, protein vector, there's mRNA, which we've all, yeah, all probably heard of when we've been going to get our vaccines here in the UK. So yeah, it is a more complex process but often that's been used as an argument against local production of vaccines in lower income countries there's you know a quite a racist assumption to be blunt that you know countries in the global south don't have the capability to produce vaccines when actually you know across india in senegal in south africa you've got loads of vaccines being made that actually make up 60 to 80% of all the vaccines that are used in the global south So there is that manufacturing capability there. It's just about investing in it and uh, removing some of these barriers, these intellectual property barriers, these barriers like such as trade secrets that, you know, protect information that's really crucial to how you manufacture a vaccine. You know, some of the clinical data, some of the data you need in order to get regulatory approval, in order to get your product out there and, you know, passing regulatory standards and out into people's arms. So yeah, those are things that we need to do, but there is existing capacity out there. Thanks, Sersha. So how, last question on this kind of um, section about how we got here, you know, thinking about the broader economic systems around this, and maybe to come to you on this one, Achal, in the first instance, how do you think the belief that markets know best is hampering our efforts to fight the pandemic? This is a very interesting question. And one of the best counterexamples I can think of is actually the flu vaccine, which you had brought up earlier. The flu vaccine is given out in the billions of doses every year, has been for several years. You've never probably heard of anyone not being able to afford one because they're quite cheap. And the reason that they're available in such large quantities around the world is that because for the last 30 years or so, they are made by a collaborative network of governments. So it's government laboratories. It's the CDC in the United States. They're equivalents in 110 countries who come together to monitor flu strains as they circulate 
and then feed that intelligence back into a central unit at the World Health Organization, which then collects these strains, analyzes them, and decides the formula for the flu vaccine twice a year, once at the outbreak of the flu season in the Northern Hemisphere, and then again before it breaks out in the Southern Hemisphere. This formula that is collected using the intelligence gathered by governments who are funded by taxpayers in a public process is then distilled into a formula that's put back into the public domain. The formula is released publicly for any manufacturer to use anywhere in the world. They don't need any permission to pick it up. As a result, many do, and so these vaccines are available very cheaply and plentifully everywhere in the world and are taken in the billions, right? So we have in the world today in front of our eyes a, a model of how open collaborative research and vaccine production could work. And yet, it is the least known example of a successful vaccine that any of us might have heard of in the last several years. All of us instead hear of the success of the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine as the success of private enterprise, despite the fact that they were either partially or wholly subsidized, again, with your money, right? Not my money. I don't live in the United States or Europe or the United Kingdom. You do. And it's your money that made these vaccines. And that's never given any credit. And not only is it never given any credit, the governments of the United Kingdom, of the European Union, and the United States, starting about in the 1980s, accelerating in the 1990s, deliberately decided to divest any small sliver of accountability that they had in the law in terms of these public investments that they were funneling to private industry. It's part of a broader turn that occurs in the 1980s and the 90s. It's during the years of, I suppose, what one would call the heyday of a kind of neoliberalism, even though we probably weren't using that word as much at the time. These were the governments of Reagan, of Thatcher, and what they did was to make deliberate moves to ensure almost that government's role in collecting this money from its citizens and taxpayers and then funding much of the research that creates the medicines we take was obscured, but also was made unaccountable so that the governments actually could not impose conditions safer access on vaccines that they helped fund. That system that grew at the turn of the 20th and 21st centuries then metastasized over the last 20 years and has mushroomed to unimaginable proportions in the pandemic. The reason we know, of course, that these governments are funding vaccine manufacturers is because they all had to justify what they were doing in the pandemic prior to us getting vaccines. If they had not had to do that, it would have been incredibly hard for us to find the exact amounts of funds that were given to these companies. So we know almost by accident, right? And the amount of money that has gone in, I think, really shocks us all. But I think it's astonishing now that even with the lessons learned, that neither the United States government, nor the European Union, nor uh, the British government seem to feel that they should go back and look at these agreements, both the contracts that they sign when giving away this money, as well as the legal infrastructure that's in place that encourages 
this rather sort of fruitless and pointless system of pharmaceutical production. I do find it astonishing that they don't seem to think that there is anything wrong with the system that they have allowed to grow. I mean, yeah, I think that that's exactly the word for it. I, I think for me, what seems to be so astounding in, in everything that you're kind of both laying out is just the extent to which this doesn't feel like a, a public conversation that's being had at the moment. It, do, it doesn't feel like a lot of these kind of facts and figures are being thrown around and people are outraged as they should be. And I guess part of that feels like maybe it's due to the fact that people think something is being done about it. So when I talk to people about this, for example, they they talk about things like COVAX, the WHO scheme to get vaccine doses to poorer countries. Sersha, can you tell us how that works and what success it's had so far? And is is that perhaps a reason why people are, are not as outraged as they should be? Yeah, so COVAX was set up in May of 2020. And um, it was set up by the WHO, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and some other global health agencies. And it's part of this structure called the ACT-A, the the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. And the aim of that was to speed up the research, manufacturing, and delivery of vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostic tests. And COVAX is the vaccine arm of that Act A structure. But the problem with COVAX is that it is just existing within the status quo in that it has done nothing to look at the actual systemic or more structural barriers that prevent this necessary scale up in supply of vaccines and also diagnostics and treatments that we need to treat everybody around the world and vaccinate everybody around the world. But also to look at like, how do you do that in a sustained way? And the key to it being, you know, sustained is that there's local production of all those tools so that, you know, nationally and regionally, there can be a a closer reliance on access to all those pandemic tools that you need to treat your population and manage the pandemic in your within your country. So rather than doing that, what COVAX is essentially is it was trying to make the procurement of COVID-19 vaccines equal across all countries. Uh, so the idea was it was trying to get around this um, vaccine nationalism issue in that each country If you're a high income country, then you would buy them yourselves. And if you were a lower income country, then you would get access through the financial contributions from a higher income country. And there was supposed to be this equitable allocation framework. So once vaccines, so this was set up before the vaccines had even been, you know, um, had even come onto the market. But the idea was, you know, first, all countries would get access to vaccines to be able to treat the most vulnerable groups within their population. And and that was like up to, you know, 20% of the population. And then once that was all, it was everybody had done that up to 20% and then it would move up and move up. Like that's that was the idea of how it was going to work. That was the idea of how it was going to be equitable. But it failed to consider the re- reality that high-income countries, the UK being like the leading example, was doing all these bilateral deals with AstraZeneca, with Pfizer, with Glaxis, with you know, with all the potential vaccines that were out there, which ended up in you know high-income countries swallowing up eighty percent 
of the existing vaccine supply when those vaccines first came onto the market. So yeah, COVAX very much failed in terms of being equitable. But it also, as Achal was saying earlier on, like the industries um, has very much overpromised and underdelivered in terms of what it said, you know, the doses it said it would produce. So COVAX has been hugely inadequate and underdelivered on its targets as well. And that's, you know, to low income countries. Meanwhile, um, it was still possible, you know, under the original model of COVAX for high income countries to use the vaccines that they had procured through the COVAX mechanism. And the UK government used their COVAX option. We took, I think, 500,000 vaccines out in April. And, you know, that was an, at a, a stage where we were rolling out a national vaccine program. And, you, and at that stage, there was like less than 1% of people in low income countries vaccinated. So, yeah, we've been taking from every pot that's been available and then wasting them because, you know, they don't have a very long shelf life and they need to have at least two months on them if they're given to somebody. So that means that, yeah, that's why we had that case uh, uh, last week of, you know, 600,000 being being wasted by the UK government. So, yeah, COVAX uh, and the whole of the ACTA structure, there's a huge amount of criticism of it just being you know, set up to continue like to serve the interests of the industry. And, you know, an important part of it is to enable high income countries to donate surplus vaccines um, or redistribute vaccines to lower income countries. But all the pledges that, that high income countries have made to donate those vaccines, we're behind on all of those pledges, like not just the UK, but the USA as well. And obviously, like that was only ever going to be a very small drop in the ocean of what was actually required. So from Stoppe's perspective, we very much feel that we need a more transformative, a much more transformative solution than what COVAX presents. Mm, that was really comprehensive. Thanks, Sersha. So, so we've kind of set up really clearly the problems facing the global vaccine rollout, but I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the effects that this is having around the world. So last month, 75 charities said that global vaccine inequality could lead to an endless pandemic. And I just, I guess I want to spend some time unpacking that. Let's start with you, Achel. So the Delta variant is now the main COVID variant in the UK. How do you think that our failure to get vaccines to poorer countries might affect the potential for new mutations of the virus here and and abroad? India had vaccinated about 3% of its population in April when the Delta variant really flared up and was sort of unleashed into the world. We now have countries with around the same vaccination rate all across sub-Saharan Africa in some parts of Asia and other parts of the world. These are the poorest countries in the world, and they all have the same vaccination rates that India had uh, six months ago. I feel like almost putting it in words is dangerous, but obviously any country that has surges of COVID infections combined with very low vaccination rates is a potential hotspot of some new horror some new variant or some other kind of mutation that prolongs this pandemic forever. Look, it's not just prolonging the pandemic in poor countries. It is prolonging the pandemic where you live in the United Kingdom earlier this year. Uh, Now, thankfully, not so much. But in Germany, in Austria and in the Netherlands right now, 
it is a prolonged pandemic and people even there are quite fed up with this. So this is a strategy that really does defeat the entire world unequally, but definitely the entire world, including rich countries. It's the most self-defeating thing that I've seen, which is, I think, partly why I don't understand for purely selfish reasons as to why countries in like in Europe don't do more to vaccinate the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems that governments, in particular in Europe, don't seem to have realized that nowhere is safe from COVID until everywhere is safe. Achal, how much do you think that nationalism plays a role in this? Look, I think I have some sympathy with the nationalist argument. And the reason I have sympathy with it is that sovereign governments are responsible to the people who pay them taxes and live in their countries and vote for them, um, not just because they have the governments in power have to be voted back into power, but for less instrumental reasons, including constitutional responsibilities, right? And so there's no question that I expect the British government to take care of British people before it takes care of me or of people I work with in Southern Africa or Brazil. There's no question. But there is a degree of self-defeating nationalism, which is absurd. I work with people who are trying to use human rights instruments, for instance, currently in Europe, uh, to see if they can lay claims against these governments like the United Kingdom and Germany and the United States for not doing more to put pressure using all kinds of different emergency provisions that exist in all these three countries to put pressure on the private companies that they funded and supported to share their vaccine technology with other manufacturers in other countries in the world. And it's possible that there is a human rights angle to making this a reality, but I think that there shouldn't have to be court cases that push governments to do this. There should be popular will and support within the United Kingdom or in other European countries to get their governments to stop the pandemic in those countries by shutting it off in other countries, right? And I do believe that if that argument was somehow a little clearer to everybody, both that systems that have been set up to vaccinate the world have failed utterly, but also that there are things that the governments of Germany, the United States, and other European countries can do that they're not doing. One of those things, for instance, is supporting a matter that's coming up at the World Trade Organization, which is a discussion on one-year-old proposal by the governments of South Africa and India to have pharmaceutical monopolies lifted in what is the world's worst humanitarian crisis in over 100 years. It's taken them a year to get to the stage where they feel they might have the wherewithal to discuss it. But there's still no sign that it is going to pass. And the reason it's not going to pass is because of opposition by Britain, by Germany and by Europe, uh, by Switzerland and Norway and countries like that who believe that it doesn't matter if large parts of the world are dying or are in a state of distress with their economies in tatters, pharmaceutical monopolies and the pledges that we've made to corporations to uphold their right to absurd profits 
$35 billion in revenue for Pfizer, for instance, uh, so far alone on its one vaccine pharmaceutical product. It's astonishing. And I think that there's so much more that these governments can do, which they're not doing. And I'm angered by that. They can start by getting behind this TRIPS waiver and supporting the 100 plus developing countries who are asking for some small cessation of the ceaseless reign of these unjust, unviable pharmaceutical monopolies in this time. But even that appears not to be happening, right? And it just baffles me. I, I've, I've talked about this a lot over the last year, so I almost have no words to describe how this is not something that the British government can't see has to be done, not just for itself, but for everyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think baffling is the word, to say the least. Uh, let's continue then. Let's wrap up by looking at what could be done to close the gap that might actually work. You know, I've heard a lot of really great suggestions here, but it feels that, as you're saying, that that big blocker is around this kind of fundamental understanding of what it means to have a world, really, that is safe and protected from COVID. Serge, let's start with you. So do you think that people generally understand how the vaccine rollout is being blocked by big pharma and certain governments, or is that work that still needs to be done? I think there's you know, the prevailing narrative is still that we owe everything to these pharmaceutical companies for producing these vaccines and producing the COVID-19 tests. And, you know, members of the People's Vaccine Alliance, but, you know, people across the world are doing their best to um, to rebut those arguments and to change that narrative and show actually how you know, as we've spoken about, these products have been produced with public money, but also it is actually the industry, the power of the industry, because they're incredibly, incredibly powerful. You know, the influence that they have on governments, like, I mean, there's very much a revolving door between industry and, and the UK government, for sure, means that, yeah, they are blocking, you know, widespread access to vaccines and treatments and diagnostics, but particularly for the vaccines, you know, it's been said again and again and again by the Wellcome Trust, by SAGE, that if you have this situation where you've got high vaccine coverage, medium vaccine coverage in some countries, and then very low vaccine coverage, that is the perfect incubation situation for, for new variants to emerge. So, you know, just as a child said, like, we're kicking ourselves in the, in the, in the teeth here. Like, you know, it, it would, it's an act of enlightened self-interest to ensure that there's global access to all these tools. So, yeah, what we need to get the public more on board with is this counter-narrative. And also to illustrate and in a clear way, and it's difficult because intellectual property is like it's a complex and I've been campaigning on this issue for like eight years and it's hard to make it, you know, simple, snappy, campaignable language. But this initiative that Achal spoke about, the waiver, the temporary waiver on intellectual property, the World Trade Organization, it could be a transformation of the situation that we have now. And yeah, it's a key campaigning moment for us, this WTO ministerial conference that starts on Tuesday next week. And if people listening want to take action, you can go onto the People's Vaccine website and you can sign the petition there. You can write to your MP about this. And yeah, we will be doing some actions on the 30th. So please, yeah, check out Stop Aid's Twitter and be retweeting us. And there's lots of things happening. There's letters from nurses across the world. There's a lawyer's letter, there's a business leader's letter. So yeah, we really want to drum up momentum around, around this meeting because 
progress on the waiver could likely happen. And yeah, we want to make the most of it. Thanks, Sersha. My favorite bit of uh, advertising around this was when you got an ice cream truck and uh, designed the Trips wafer and gave everyone free ice creams with a wafer in it. That was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being part of that, Aisha. (laughs) A stroke of genius. Um, Achal, let's end with you. What kind of policy changes do we need to see from the world's governments to get COVID vaccines rolled out fast enough? And and I guess anything else, like Sersha was saying, that we can and should be doing around this? From where I sit, Asha, I think uh, I'm so grateful, firstly, for the kind of work that Sasha and organizations like Stop AIDS and the People's Vaccine Alliance do. And I'm grateful so much in part because they are fighting for the world from the centers of power, which people like me are very far away from. I can't actually demonstrate outside uh, the Houses of Parliament in London because I'm not there. And thanks to COVID, of course, I won't be there for a very long time. And I think any movement that's happened, so for instance, the United States government did actually signal support uh, for a suspension of pharmaceutical monopolies in the pandemic, which would absolutely transform vaccine access around the world. But they did that not because it was the right thing to do, because as we know, governments somehow aren't set up to function like that. But they did that because of widespread support that elected members of the House and the Senate received from their constituents, uh, from people who were organizing and talking about this and advocating for it, who then were able to turn it into a popular issue in the United States, which obviously then filtered back to the White House, which made a decision based on what it was hearing from the people who voted for it. I think that similar kinds of popular uprisings in other countries like the UK and in other parts of Europe would really help to shift this dialogue. Because at the moment, I think there is so much outrage outside these countries, but it's almost like there's a filter that removes all of that from within the country. And so as long as you're living a normal life and not necessarily reading the international news every day, there's a kind of complicity between governments for their inaction and the people who don't know any better than to hold them accountable to do something about this, which could be broken, I think, as more of what's really going on in the world gets out to people who live in places with governments who can do something. I do hope that happens. And I see that as actually the very best hope to shifting something at the World Trade Organization when ministers from around the world fly in to see if they can do one last thing one year after it was asked for, right? In a world that's being torn apart and burning and is being destroyed, it's taken them a year to figure out whether they should do something about it. And there's no indication, by the way, that they will even next week. But that, I think, is hopeless. And I think that a more hopeful way to think about it is that the amount of noise that's being created about this, the amount of anger, I think, that just ordinary, right-thinking, humane people feel, uh, even in countries where there are lots of vaccines available, is, I think, and in the end, what will change the system. I mean, we can only hope. But I mean, this this conversation has definitely 
filled me with, with lots of hope for what can be done. And it, it definitely feels perhaps more so than some of the things we talk about on the podcast, like some real movement on this is possible. And that is in huge part because of the brilliant work that both of you are doing. So thank you so much um, for being with me. That's all we've got time for on this week's Weekly Economics podcast. Let's come to you first, Achal Prabala. Thank you. If people want to find out more about what you're up to, where can they go? What should they read? How can they get involved? Thank you. Uh, my academic research and the work of my colleagues is up at accessibsa.org. And I've been writing and working through the pandemic in publications like The Guardian, The New York Times, The Atlantic, uh, Project Syndicate, uh, The Intercept, and a host of others. Brilliant. And Sergio Fitzpatrick, same question. If people want to find out more about what you're up to, um, where can they go? What should they read? How can they get their hands on a trips wafer? Um, So yeah, you can follow us, StopAids, at StopAids on Twitter. Um, Also follow People's Vaccine. And yeah, People's Vaccine have a great website, actually, with with lots of resources on there. Third World Network have loads of really comprehensive but accessible papers on like what is a trade secret and really unpacks what the TRIPS waiver is all about. So yeah, I'd I'd really recommend people to go there as well as reading all of Achal's work. Perfect. That is it for today's Week at Economics podcast and for the series. Sob. Have a wonderful festive period and we'll be back in the new year with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>